This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's Thursday, March 9th, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to The Secrets, the podcast about writing. I've stopped calling these special editions since I like the format and I've gotten used to it. I'm still considering other formats, but that might mean splitting out another show. And I really had intended to be back on schedule, but travel and a nasty cold intervened. On top of that, I had a 10-day visit by my parents and starting a new novel, and well, things got kind of busy. Oh, and issue 47 of the Secrets newsletter went out on the 1st of March. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a science fiction and fantasy novelist and editor, game and computer game designer, who's managing to endure his mother's redecorating his house, but only just barely. I've had 38 books published, 8 of those books hit the New York Times bestseller list, Cartomancy, the sequel to A Secret Atlas, came out on February 28th, which was my dad's birthday and kind of cool. Came out in that big format and it's got, um, well, you can get the Secret Atlas in the smaller format. The Secrets Podcast is an audio companion to my writing newsletter, which is also called The Secrets. You can learn more about the newsletter on my homepage at www.stormwolf.com. Download the sample issues and decide if it's worth a dollar an issue to focus your writing on success. Back issues are also available, and the Hurricane Katrina Relief Package is still running. Yeah, as you can tell by the use of that bridge music there, I got GarageBand 3, and it's got some cool things, so I'm trying to, you know, play with the music and have fun, because, I mean, what the heck is it, you know, having these toys if you don't actually use them? But, on to the secrets. A couple of weeks ago, I attended StellarCon in North Carolina. It's a great science fiction convention, and the folks there tend to invite Timothy Zahn, Aaron Alston, and me back every other year as part of a celebration of Star Wars. This was my fifth time attending the convention, and as always, I had a great time. One huge thrill this year was learning that Timothy Zahn had dedicated his latest book, Outbound Flight, to me. It's a Star Wars novel, of course, and the one that brings the universe full circle and sets up Tim's original trilogy. It was a great honor for Tim to have done that, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, an honor for me. Uh, he truly is a gentleman and a scholar and a very great friend. Also at the convention, I learned about a special Star Wars auction for the benefit of Metacinema, a charity which builds state-of-the-art theaters in hospitals. Their website is www.metacinema, put M-I-D-I in front of the word cinema, .org.uk. The auction is of Star Wars movie memorabilia, and you can learn more about it at their website or at www.starwars.com slash community slash news slash charity slash news 20062152015.html. That's a lot. I'll have this in the ID tags. It's a very worthy cause, and the auction is being organized by Jerome Blake, who appeared in the new Star Wars films. Please check it out and bid. Each year, StellarCon features a writing workshop run by Alan Wold. The format is simple. All participants are given about 10 minutes to write the first 100 words of a story. They read their openings aloud, and the writers Alan has assembled 
Go ahead and comment on what might be tweaked, what was good, and what should be avoided in the future. The fascinating thing about the workshop is that through listening to 20 or more opening paragraphs, all written under time pressure, everyone gets to see the sorts of errors that can creep into work. Instead of turning out 2,000 words and trying to jam all these things in there yourself, you get help from others. This year's participants were actually very good, and I have a list of points that got made during the discussions that I thought we could all benefit from. These are points to ponder when you're trying to figure out why your story doesn't seem to be having the effect that you want. First off, make sure that you use multiple senses. Because of TVs and movies, a lot of writers tend to forget senses aside from hearing and vision. Touch and smell are very evocative. They really round out the world. Also make sure to toss color in so you're not stuck describing a black and white world. Heat, cold, vibrations, and pain are all subsets of the sense of touch and can be very, very powerful. Second, avoid the passive voice. Okay, this is one your English teachers should have covered, but here it is in a nutshell. Anytime the verb to be in the form of is or was gets used to modify a verb, you're using what's called the passive voice. For example, this sentence is in the passive voice. The ball was hit by the bat. Compare that with the bat hit the ball. Much more direct and powerful. Now, if you use a better verb than hit, like crushed or smashed, you can have an even more powerful sentence. In my own work, I really go to war on the verb was. It turns out, to my chagrin, that you might actually have to use it legitimately to describe the state of something's existence, like Bob was dead. But using it for something inappropriate, like the sentence, the car was red, is a waste. In those cases, I pull the verb and put the adjective where it ought to be. This leaves me with the red car. Now, that's not a sentence, so I'm forced to think up something good there. The red car screamed around the corner on two wheels. Much better, much more evocative and engaging. Third, show, don't tell. This is the first of the rules of writing, and they're in the secrets, and it was also featured on my very first podcast. In short form, telling runs like this, George was angry. Showing is George's hands curled into white-knuckled fists. Now, you'll note that that pesky verb to be can get wrapped up in the whole telling thing, so look for it, and it can be a clue. By showing, you draw a picture in the reader's mind. This makes the reader work a bit, and that's part of engaging them. You want to show as much as possible. That's not to say there aren't times when you need to impart some information and you can't fit a scene in. Let's say Kevin's team lost his Little League game the night before. You could write a description of the whole game and might do that in a novel. Or you let the reader know that his team lost. There are a number of ways to do that, like, quote, Kevin's father looked up from the sports page, says, here you boys lost again, son. How was your game? That example does a couple of things for us. We know Kevin lost, which is good. We know his father wasn't at the game, and that can make us wonder about his father. Then again, the father asks how his son played, which indicates some concern. Or does it? We might have to wait for the father's reaction to whatever Kevin says to gauge how he feels. Basically, we're looking at characterization, and this is a great opening to any of a number of stories. Maybe the dad is a doctor who works with wounded vets, and has a man who used to play baseball who would help coach the team save the guys depressed at having lost a leg, so it will take the kids and his coming to an accommodation to make things work. Or Kevin's dad is a jerk, and Kevin goes home to where his mother lives and finds she's got a new boyfriend, who Kevin doesn't like. 
but the guy turns out to be a great baseball coach, and we have a story of their growing relationship. That whole discussion dovetails into the next point that came up in the workshop. Start your story at the beginning. Kevin's story doesn't have to begin with his striking out so his team lost, even though that might be a critical element that drives him through the story. The story starts at the point where the character is presented with a problem that can only be solved by his changing. That, that idea is a variant on something Orson Scott Card said, which was that stories start at the point of change for a character. I've modified it because it's important, in my mind, for writers to identify the core problem the character is dealing with in the story. Kevin's problem is that he can't hit a curveball. His striking out may have pointed that out to him, but the story starts when he accepts the challenge of learning how to hit a curveball. Now, Kevin's inability to hit a curveball is doesn't isn't going to be, doesn't have to be, the only problem in the story, but it's the central one we're going to address. The writer has to decide how Kevin will change. Is it just the need for more practice? Is it that he needs to mature a little and get serious about more than just baseball? Is it that his father always gives him stuff to get him over the hurt of failure? And he doesn't want to lose that connection with his dad, so, you know, consciously or unconsciously, he's willing to fail, so his dad will give him stuff? That's a fair amount to figure out before you start, and it's critical if you're going to put together a solid story. A fifth point that should be obvious to everyone, and having nothing to do with Kevin and Kevin's story, thank goodness, is that sex sells. That doesn't mean that you have to have characters parading around all naked and stuff. Though in the days of Robert Howard, that would get you the cover painting on Weird Tales. Readers are suckers for romance in novels and in stories, even though they won't admit to it. I used to have my Battletech readers asking me if the ill-fated romance of Victor Davian and Omi Kurita, nobles of two enemy nations, would ever be consummated. I mean, look, these are military science fiction novels, and yet the readers, many of them in the military themselves, we're all jazzed about the romance. It never hurts to put a little romance and love story into your work. Point six, only tell us what we need to know. You might have a whole background in history for a mythical town you're setting your mystery in, but the reader only needs to know the facts that are immediately going to impinge on the story. Could be your little town burned witches at the stake in 1875, but unless your story's tied to that behavior, or the folks involved, we really don't need to know that. Now, if the current behavior in the town is centered on intolerance for those who are different, you could mention the witch burnings in a litany of events that show the town is intolerant. Doing that's a good way to hide a fact in a field of red herrings, in fact. Absent reasons like that, however, don't clutter a tale with extraneous details because the reader's trying to make sense of things. If he can't, he'll stop reading you. The seventh thing to be taken away from the workshop is really good. Make sure you're using the right character to tell the story. We all come up with really cool characters from time to time. We're looking forward to their mopping the deck with a bad guy or doing something else that's just wicked. These are great characters to read about, but seldom make for good central characters for a story. It gets back to the whole change thing I just mentioned. The focus character for your story needs to change, so make sure you pick someone who will change. Point number eight, humor is almost as good as sex. There's a difference between writing a comedy and having humor in a book. A comedy is intended to make the audience laugh throughout. And comedy is not easy. If the jokes don't work for a particular reader, that book may as well be written in Linear B or some other language we don't understand. 
Roger Zelazny once invited me to contribute to a braided novel anthology project called Forever After. The book was humorous, definitely a comedy, and I sweated bullets over every line. What the author thinks is funny might not be. As it was, I turned out a piece that I really liked, and Roger did as well. I was lucky, both for the opportunity and in that I was able to make the most of it. Humor can take many forms, from slapstick, which is tough to pull off in books, to puns and farces and joke lines. I personally like irony and black humor a lot, too. There are at least two reasons to put humor in any work. The first is simply this. There is no situation where something can't be funny. Viktor Frankl, in his book on life in a Nazi death camp, pointed out the humor shared among prisoners. Granted, it was strained and definitely gallows humor, but it was humor. In that instance, as with many others, folks release tension through humor, so including it makes the work just that much more realistic. The second reason is related to the explanation for the first. Humor bleeds off tension. In a tense novel or story, humor can let the reader relax a little bit. This is critical if you're going to try and build the tension. Without space to relax, a reader doesn't get a chance to see how tense things really are. Stephen King and Nelson DeMille both are adept at this. Third, and this is a bonus reason, is that humor can contribute a lot to characterization. Face it, few folks like or trust someone who has no sense of humor. We judge how smart folks are on their ability to get jokes or make puns. We judge how crazy folks are based on what they find funny. Anyone remember dead baby jokes? You laugh, but you feel guilty. And do you recall how you felt in the pit of your stomach when someone makes a racist joke in your presence? By including types of humor and language in your work, you can evoke these same responses in your reader. Point number nine, and this is the last one we'll take out of the workshop. Create a sense of urgency. Readers expect to be drawn into your work, and having a sense of urgency to things really pulls them in. You get this by dropping folks into quickly evolving situations, or by having them ask questions that can't be answered immediately. I've got a couple of samples of opening lines here for you that kind of create urgency. Here's the first one. It wasn't until he got into line behind the guy pulling on the ski mask that Jim realized this was going to be anything but a routine trip to the bank. Or try this one. Jim fingered the ring box and swallowed hard. Jessica had to accept his proposal. Third time's the charm, right? Or we could use the old standby of, the third slug was the one that spun me around, but it wasn't until my pistol flew from my hand that I began to get worried. Any of those lines would start an interesting story. Just think about them. Aren't you curious where the events will go from there? The possibilities are endless. Events are acute, and the results are likely to be dramatic. In his latest novel, Cell, Stephen King does a great job of creating urgency. In the opening pages, we learn that our protagonist, Clayton, has just had a dream of a lifetime come true. He's in Boston after a successful business meeting, buying presents for his son and estranged wife, both of whom are in Maine. He's anxious to get home to see them when all hell breaks loose. And what's great is that this central drive to return to his family and make sure they're safe is what carries Clayton through the entire book. Aside from being an entertaining read, it's deceptively direct in a simple story. Perhaps the most direct since The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. As I've noted before, I think King is probably the best writer working in English today. And if there's one guy you want to learn from, it would be him. Check out Sal or any of his other works, especially for characterization. The guy is just absolutely great. 
Okay, I wanted to shift gears here for a moment and touch on two other things that were in the news and you may have heard about. First of all, you may have seen a news item about how Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, is being sued in the United Kingdom for having violated the copyright of two authors who produced a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail back in the early 1980s. Actually, Dan Brown's not being sued. Random House, the publisher is, who is also the publisher of that book. It's a very weird lawsuit. Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was published as fact, contained allegations that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but moved to the south of France and fathered a bloodline that's still alive today and had been the kings of France for a while. It has all sorts of conspiracies tied up in it and the like, and Dan Brown even acknowledges having used it as a source in the course of his novel. There are two things which are curious about this. First, back in the early 80s, a friend of mine, Steve Peterson, recommended Holy Blood, Holy Grail to me. He said he thought it would make a great basis for a killer novel. I read the book on his recommendation, and I had trouble with the authors and their grasp of history. I lumped it with other conspiratorial works, and the scholarship I thought was on a level with Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Nice if you don't know anything, but otherwise, forget it. Cute, wish it could be true, but I prefer my facts with a lot less speculation and a lot more footnotes. Of course, when the Da Vinci Code hit, I knew exactly where Brown had started his research, and I was a bit chagrined that I hadn't followed up on Steve's idea. Apparently, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail are suing in the UK because they tried to sue Brown in the United States, and the case was tossed out as having no merit. To wit, you copyright words, you patent ideas. Because the authors presented their work as non-fiction, it's legitimate for any author to use their work as a basis for fictional speculation. If Brown had lifted their words wholesale, then they'd have a copyright infringement suit. Playing with their ideas, which, again, they claimed were fact, is fair game under United States law. I'm actually looking forward to seeing how the case makes out in Great Britain. Second thing I want to do is give a big pat on the back to anyone who manages to write while juggling a real life. You know, a job, kids, visiting parents. As I noted at the top of this podcast, my parents are here for a 10-day visit. Actually, they, they just left earlier in the week. And trying to carve out time to actually write was really, really tough. It's not because the time was not there, but because the ability to concentrate was totally trashed. Part of that might be my still feeling lousy after coming off a cold, but another part is just having people who are dependent upon me in the house. And yes, having them pounding picture hangers into the walls and redecorating is enough to drive one to drink. My mom will say, Michael, don't you think that picture would look better if you lowered it about two inches? Which means, of course, she thinks it's too high on the wall. And, of course, I answer, Well, Mother, if I thought it should be two inches lower, don't you think I'd have hung it two inches lower? And then when I come back down from my office, it is two inches lower and has the potential for dropping even lower. The point of my comment is simply this. There are times that the demands of life are going to impinge on your writing time. Colds happen. People visit. Power failures happen. Social obligations like birthday parties and, unfortunately, funerals happen. If you entirely sacrifice your social humanity for your work, neither it nor you will be very popular. Just make sure you carve out time to write. I did this by, you know, dropping my folks off at the mall. Of course, uh, you know, my mom came up with a lot of pillows and had to show me how to arrange them to make the living room look nicer. And she wanted me to look at a recliner that will, quote, complete the living room, end quote. Um, yeah, that just wasn't happening. In any event, I was able to make time and was able to get some work done. Give yourself time and space to write. 
Think about the little details that will help make the story good. And don't worry about researchers suing you for using their stuff. That last will only happen after you sell books the way Dan Brown has been selling them. And at that time, getting sued for infringement on research will be the least of your worries. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit www.stormwolf.com to get your sample issues of The Secrets. Issue 47, with discussions of numbers, characterization, and plotting, came out on March 1st. My latest book, Cartomancy, came out on the 28th of February. It's a sequel to Secret Atlas, and I'd really like you guys to go check it out. And if you like it, you know, maybe post a review on Amazon or something like that. Certainly recommend it to people. The podcast also has a discussion forum on www.tsfpn.com. Please feel free to come by over there and ask questions and participate in the discussions about writing. I'm not sure at all what the next podcast will cover, and it probably won't be next week since I have to go out of town again. Hit the forums, make suggestions, let me know what you want, what you need covered, and I'll do my best to do what you want. This podcast is copyright 2006 by Michael A. Stackpole. I'll be back when I can with more about writing and working with words. Until then, good luck with your writing.